0: Good evening. How are y'all doing? Yeah? Well, it's such a joy to be here with y'all tonight. Uh, I'm going to rant a little bit, uh, but why don't you join me in Ezekiel chapter 18. As Emma just read, we're going to be looking at verses 30 through 32. 32. If you are new, my name is Marco. I'm the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, it is such a joy to gather with y'all to, to worship uh, and to look at God's Word. And as Nathaniel said earlier, to examine and reflect on the condition of our hearts. And so while you are turning or loading your Bible, as I mentioned, I'm going I'm to rant just a little bit, especially if this is your first Ash Wednesday service ever or here at Storehouse. uh, You're not going to see or you're not going to find Ash Wednesday or the season of Lent anywhere in your Bible. Ash Wednesday is not necessarily an occasion observed in the pages of Scripture, but God's Word, however, is flooded with the practice of reflection, meditation, and repentance. And at the end of the day, that's what Ash Wednesday is all about, reflection and inevitably repentance. And so it does beg the question, well then, if it's not found in the pages of Scripture, then why do we as a church observe this occasion? If you would uh, just keep your attention on this, I'm going to give you three quick reasons. I love giving you reasons. Uh, and, and this will preface our time, essentially. The first one is, is because it's an opportunity to preach on repentance. Repentance inevitably leads to the gospel that Jesus died for sinners in order that we might be reconciled to the Father. The ashes that Christians choose to receive on their forehead simply symbolize sorrow, grief, grief. And repentance. Grief ought to always accompany repentance. A second reason is, if you haven't noticed, we are in the heart of McAllen. We are surrounded by predominantly a Roman Catholic neighborhood, and our Catholic friends uh, love the church calendar, and they love liturgy. And the whole point of the church calendar is that it focuses on specific aspects of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so the season of Lent is focused on the time where Jesus fasted in the wilderness after being commissioned by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, It is not just on the season of Lent. There is a reason we celebrate uh, Easter, Right, why, why do we celebrate Easter? Even though technically that, that's, that's not its name, it is the resurrection of Christ. We celebrate or observe Advent because we are looking toward the coming of a king. All of these marks on the church calendar are in an effort to focus on a specific time in the life of Jesus. And within the season of Lent, uh, we often teach on the spiritual discipline of Fasting. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But before diving into fasting, Ash Wednesday kicks off the season of Lent. Before fasting, we ought to reflect on the condition of our heart, which leads into the third reason. Having an Ash Wednesday service or receiving an ash on the forehead is not something super spiritual, it's not even something for elite Christians. In fact, when we respond to the word with receiving ash or or with with the potential, the possibility, the option of receiving the ash, you don't even have to come forward because it is not a sacrament. It is simply a mark that distinguishes us it is a public proclamation of repentance. When you flip through the pages of the Old Testament, you see the Old Testament saints cover themselves in ash and in sackcloth after they have received a conviction and they are repenting of their sin. And oftentimes they are doing it in public. And so it is a public proclamation of repentance. So if you walk out of here with an ash on your forehead and people ask you, why did you get an ash? You get to talk to them about Jesus not because you're super spiritual. Okay? Further as I mentioned, it leads Ash Wednesday leads us into the season of Lent and the season of Lent is marked by the spiritual discipline of fasting. Now, let me talk just a little bit about the spiritual discipline of fasting. It is not a dietary restriction. I know individuals who will say, "Oh, what I'm going to give up for Lent is is chocolate." That's that's not necessarily fasting. Fasting is sacrificially denying yourself comfort in an effort to grow closer to Jesus. And I want to emphasize the word sacrificial because that means it's going to hurt. Staying off of chocolate for 40 days probably won't hurt. Some of you are like, well, I don't know. Fast for two or three days a week fast for two, because if you look through the pages of Scripture, when we see the saints enter into a season of fasting, when we see Jesus enter into a season of fasting, there is no food being consumed. Puts a little, makes it a little bit harder now. Oftentimes, we look at it in terms of something superficial, Whether it's the season of Lent, or whether we wanna practice fasting, it's often looked at as something superficial, not exactly sacrificial. It ought to hurt. And the purpose of it is to grow closer to Jesus. In addition to that, this isn't the only time the Christian ought to practice fasting. This is merely an opportunity. More so than the dietary restrictions or denying yourselves of whatever comfort you might be thinking of, the point of fasting, yes, is to draw closer to Jesus because as we draw closer to Jesus by denying ourselves comforts, we are inevitably going to receive a heart check, which is why the church doesn't fast very much, which might be why you don't fast very much, or maybe have a misunderstanding of fasting. So if you never have, my encouragement to you would be use this as an opportunity to grow in this spiritual discipline. I promise you, Jesus will make himself known to you when you're hungry after not eating for two days. I promise you, Jesus is going to bring to light sin that you don't want to talk about. I promise you Jesus and the Holy Spirit are going to bring to surface the things that you just don't want to talk about because it's kind of uncomfortable. I promise you the God of the Bible is going to make himself known, and inevitably what he is going to do is give you a heart check, which is where we find ourselves today. Because we love Jesus and his word and his promises, we together tonight are going to receive a heart check. But it's a heart check not out of condemnation, but love with the Father's heart. In an effort to do that, i got to ask you some questions. The first one is, is your heart hardened? You see this illustration throughout Scripture. Is your heart hardened? If you think about a stone... Stone doesn't move, doesn't feel anything. When you think about the, illustri- the illustration of a stone in Scripture, a stone doesn't feel anything. It doesn't have room or capacity or a desire for Jesus. In fact, it is one that rejects Jesus, it is one that wants nothing to do with Jesus. Is your heart hardened? Is your heart burdened? Many of you have come in here and you are walking with guilt and shame, anger, and all sorts of sin that is just bearing you down. Is your heart burdened? Now we can continue to substitute the words, but it's going to stand for its own. Is your heart hardened? Are you in rebellion to God? Are you upset with God? Are you upset with the things of God? And is your heart burdened? If so, then tonight is for you. I'd like to reread Ezekiel 18, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive into our time tonight. And God, as we dive into your word, as we continue to worship you now through the preached word, Holy Spirit, would you be not only present, but at work among us? Holy Spirit, would you be at work at the core of our hearts? Would you meet us where we are and expose, man, would you expose our sin? Lord, the beauty of your grace is that when you do convict, that when you do expose our heart and our sin, you do not leave us there but you do provide grace, and so God, I pray that, may we would grab hold of your grace so that we would be transformed into the image of Jesus, so that our hearts would continue to be transformed, and at the end of the day, that all of this would bring you glory. Whether we're in a season of Lent or not, may you continually give us heart checks. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I love about Ezekiel 18, uh, particularly in verse 30. Like, he could have stopped at verse 30 and, and would have been just. You see, what we see is that God does not pull any punches. In these opening lines of Ezekiel 18 verses 30 or the closing lines of this chapter, we see that God does not pull any punches. After all, it seems to be a value for you and I. Oftentimes, we use buzzwords like we want to be real with one another, and we want authenticity, and I just want real community. And so what God does is that he meets us where we are, and how he meets us where we are is by addressing our personal responsibility to our sin, On Sundays, we're walking through uh, 1 John, and one of the questions I had this past Sunday was, does your theology, what you believe about God, your doctrine, what you believe about, does your doctrine begin with God, or does it begin with you? Because here in verse 30, as I said, God doesn't pull any punches. Instead, He begins with our sin and His authority. He says, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways. You see, the context of Ezekiel is that the people of God have been in exile, and they have been in rebellion, and God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet in order to preach repentance and nothing. Their hearts are hardened, and they're hardened for various reasons. Why is your heart hardened? Is it because of a person? Is it because of people? Is it because of a circumstance? Is it because of something you don't enjoy or don't like? I get that. I'm sorry. That probably will be addressed. But what we see in verse 30 is that God addresses our sin first. And as a side note, if you've never fasted, oftentimes people will encourage one another, hey, you should probably fast and pray about X, Y, and Z. Lord willing, God will give you clarity. He totally will. He's just going to deal with your sin first. No one ever expects that. I thought you were going to answer my question. No, we're going to deal with you first. And in verse 30, that's exactly what God does. He begins with our sin and his authority. Now, when we look at verse 30, we might say, man, this is heavy, this is unjust, this might even be unfair. But the truth is, it isn't. It's not outside of God's character. It is not random. It is not a mood swing that he is having. In fact, if he had finished the statement with just that, that I will judge you according to your ways, he will have done us no wrong. But the truth is, in our conviction, he doesn't just leave us there. He does address our sin, but he does not leave us there. I want you to listen to First Samuel. This is uh, chapter twelve, verses twenty to twenty-two. And Samuel said to the people, "Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil." I love that. I love that because what Samuel is saying is like, "Hey, God, God understands your sin. He gets it. Like, you, know, you maybe you had a, you had a, yeah, he had a long week. Uh, it wasn't your fault." Um, God's going to dismiss this. Don't worry about that. What Samuel addresses is, hey, you actually did commit that sin. It's it's very similar to, to verse 30 in Ezekiel. Samuel says, you actually have committed that sin, but then he continues, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Just because God starts with your sin, addresses your sin, convicts you of your personal responsibility, does not mean that he has forsaken you. We just don't like it. Those are two different things. And the truth is, it's kind of common sense. We just don't like it. And so then what's the answer? Well, Ezekiel continues. So God says, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. In, the, in these two verses, God calls his people to repent three times. Again he would have been just at closing the statement in verse 30, but he doesn't. In fact, he calls his people to repent three times. And the first two times, which is what we just read, the first two times, he approaches it certainly with a, as a command, but it's a command filled with grace. It's a command filled with grace, and the call to repentance is to turn away from your sin. That is that is to set a new direction, to have a change of mind, to turn away from your sin, and to set our hearts upon the Lord. And what I want you to notice in that next section is that he says turn away from all your transgressions, cast away from you all the transgressions you have committed, not some of your sin, not the big sins or the little sins, quote unquote. He says all of your transgressions, all of your sin. Not only do I want you to turn away from it, the phrase cast away means to throw, throw it off. I want you to turn away from your sin, and I want you to align your heart with my heart. Essentially, he's saying in the call to repentance, he is saying, return to me. Return to me. Come home. That's what he's telling his people. Come home. Turn away from all your transgression. Cast away all the transgressions that you've committed. Repentance is the fruit of a new heart. It is the fruit of a new nature. One that has been regenerated by God, and when you and I ignore or dismiss repentance, we cheapen God's grace. And in the end, that alone is not repentance. That's arrogance. Where repentance lacks, there is no forgiveness. So again, he says, cast all uh, all your transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. So again, he's not leaving them in a place of conviction and saying, go figure it out. When he says, make yourselves a new heart, these are the people of God. He is essentially telling them, hey, you have gifts that I have given you. It would be as if he is telling you and I, the church right now, You have gifts that I have given you as a result of belonging to me. You have a new heart, which means you have a new nature. And we don't just stop there. You actually have the Holy Spirit that abides in you, and he works in you, and he convicts you of sin, and he teaches you, and he counsels you, and he guides you. You have these gifts. This is not about a new opportunity. This is about new life. It is about a new life that is marked by God's grace for you. Repentance is the fruit of internal change. You see, oftentimes when we begin to think about repentance, even when we take that definition, turn away from our sin and look let's set our, our, our eyes or our hearts upon the Lord, yes, it is an action that we do, but it first starts with the condition of our heart because oftentimes, when we start making changes, as we start to make changes, we're going to do these things. We're not going to do those things. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. Inevitably, we fail. Inevitably, we get frustrated. And what he is saying is, hey, repentance actually begins in the heart. Repentance is the fruit of a new heart. That, that's where it's going to start. And the way you know The way you know you're repenting is because it begins with the conviction of sin. You don't just feel bad, you're you're convicted. There is grief associated with sin. And all of that is internal. There's, There's grief associated with sin, so as you turn, it's not just something mechanical, it is the result of something internal that God, the Holy Spirit, is doing his job in you. He is doing a work in you as you are turning. He continues. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Here's the the third plea of repentance. And what I want you to notice is that he changes his tone. He changes his tone, that the Father addresses stubborn hearts, by revealing his heart. Read that one more time. Why will you die, O house of Israel? He is addressing stubborn hearts. Essentially, he's saying, Why are you being stubborn? I'm telling you to, to return to me, to come home, turn away from your sin and come to me. Why are you being stubborn? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. He addresses stubborn hearts by revealing his heart. But check it when he says, "I have no pleasure in the death of anyone." Like that does not annul his righteousness and his uh, uh, his morality. It does not annul uh, his truth and the fact that he is just. Yes, God is love, and he is merciful, and he is gracious, and he is just and righteous and pure and holy. It's not or. It's, those are things that he is. It's at his core. And so if he has to follow through with their judgment, he will, but he does so with tears in his eyes. And so the third plea for repentance is one of a father telling his children, turn away and come back to me. He is preaching repentance to them all the time, just as he preaches repentance to us. Essentially, he is saying that death and sin do not have to have the final word. And if you take anything away from tonight, take this. Condemnation is not at the heart of repentance. The Father is at the heart of repentance. It is the Father that is at the heart of repentance. And he proves this to sinners like you and me. He does so by sending his son to enter into human history as the man Jesus Christ who lived in our stead, died our penalty on the cross, I mean, check it. The first thing that he says in verse 30 is therefore I will judge you. Who received the judgment on the cross? Jesus bore our judgment. Jesus bore our condemnation. Jesus bore our shame and our guilt on the cross so that you and I might be reconciled to the Father. You and I are not without hope. And he preaches the same message to you and I today. Return or repent, be reconciled to the Father. And in repentance, here's where we're kind of closing. In repentance, the sinner is restored to God. In repentance, the sinner receives forgiveness from God. And in repentance, the sinner is cleansed by God. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To the Israelites, God is preaching repentance. To you and I, to the church, God is preaching repentance. Repentance. And so, Christian, is your heart hardened? See, God calls you to repentance so that you would be restored. Yes, he's going to address your sin. But in repentance, there is forgiveness. And Scripture says that he will remember your sin no more. See, in repentance, there is cleansing. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, making you more like Jesus. In repentance, there is restoration. Is your heart hardened? He beckons you to repent so that you would be restored. And if you're not a Christian, is your heart burdened? God invites you to know him and he is ready to pardon all who turn to him in repentance and belief in repentance the sinner receives a new heart and not a new opportunity but a new life a life that has been marked by God's grace for you again if you walk away with anything tonight walk away with this last thing Condemnation is not at the heart of repentance. It is the Father who is at the heart of repentance. So turn and live. Let's pray. God, if we're honest... Sometimes repentance seems scary. That might be one of them. Sometimes repentance seems scary because we think we're going to get in further trouble. But what we, what we learn from your word is that, that you are at the heart of repentance. That for those who are in Jesus, there is no condemnation. And so that gives us comfort that gives us grace. That gives us hope. And so, Holy Spirit, would you, would you be at work in us so that we can come forward in repentance? So that we would come forward in repentance for the sake of being restored, for the sake of being transformed. God, sometimes repentance isn't scary. Sometimes we feel like it's unnecessary. And the reason we think it's unnecessary is because if we're honest, we often take advantage of your grace. We take advantage of your grace because I know I do this. Oftentimes, we just tend to think, well, we're forgiven anyway. And the truth is that, that when we do that, we, we preach a gospel that says forgiveness doesn't mean or doesn't require repentance. God, when we do that, we ultimately cheapen your grace. Maybe it's because we're just sunk deep in a hole and and it feels like we're just never going to get out of it. Maybe it's because we actually don't have a new heart. And so God, I pray that, that those who know Jesus would come to know you better tonight. You obviously take sin and repentance seriously, so may that be something we take seriously. God, if there are those who, who don't know Jesus, I pray that they would come to know Jesus. If there are those who think they know Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you, would you make yourself known to them tonight so that their hearts would be Rendered so that their hearts would be softened. God, as we reflect on the condition of our heart, as we enter this season of Lent, as we observe Ash Wednesday, as we contemplate the condition of our hearts, may we beg the question, does our, does our doctrine begin with, with you or does it begin with us? God, and if it begins with us, would you, would you reveal that to us? Would you convict us of that sin so that we would draw our hearts upon you and so that we would come before you with confidence and grace? God, we thank you for an opportunity like this. To consider your word to worship you and to ultimately turn away from our sin to know you more or to be restored to you